This morning we're going to talk about uh, a hard topic as we continue through our study of Luke. We get to this passage, um, and we're going to see some principles from it applying to our lives. And uh, on a topic that might bring you frustration and grief and shame each day, and what we're going to talk about today is the sin in your life, the sin in my life, and particularly the sin that we struggle with, that you struggle with, that we really battle, that unfortunately wins possibly many times. And as I say those words, uh, potentially certain sins are coming to your mind. Things that you know that you struggle with, that's very clear, that you wake up and it's there, tempting you. And I'm sure that if, if you want to ask your spouse or your kids or your parents, uh, they will tell you as well, like, yep, these are the sins that you're really struggling with. And it may be an uncontrolled anger where you lash out at those you love the most. Your, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your friends. Uh, the sin that you struggle with, it may be bitterness towards certain people that you've refused to, to forgive, and so you hold this grudge and this, this ill will towards them. It may be gossip where you cannot stop being in other people's business and then uh, telling it to others under the guise of a supposedly sanctified pretense. It may be in pornography an enslavement that you're ashamed of, but you find yourself continuing to go back looking for satisfaction. Or maybe it's some different type of lust, fantasizing about someone else uh, that you, you see or as you read in a novel. Maybe it's jealousy that you hate someone who has something better than you, whether it be a house, a car, or the gifts that we got at Christmas, or just someone that is doing better than you at a certain thing. And instead of building them up, you, you, you want to tear them down, whether directly or indirectly, behind their backs. Or maybe it's jealousy. Or maybe a different form of idolatry. Something that you, you, try, you look for all your hope and your happiness in this one thing. Your hope and your security in this. But the sin that you battle with each day is what we're talking about today. And this temptation of the sin, and whatever particular sin you're thinking of, and I, I pray if you aren't thinking of something that the Holy Spirit will convict you, I've got plenty of sin I can think about as we go through this. But it's this temptation that's always before you, as I said. You wake up to it, and it's right there. You try to relax, and it's right there, tempting you to sin. It's right there in your face. It's the invisible burden that you carry throughout the day that no one sees, but you're carrying it. And this struggle with the sin probably exhausts you and it probably discourages you and sometimes even on the brink of despair and then when you do fall into it there's just shame and shame and guilt and guilt and yet you want it you desire it uh, you may not have seen the the movie or read the books the lord of the rings but there's you may probably have heard of the character uh, Gollum, the kind of scrawny zombie of a guy that is always like obsessed with this ring, and like his um, his quote, "My precious," that you'd always say, he's totally desiring it, but yet is that thing that's destroying him. Yet he wants it. He wants it, but it is killing him. And that's exactly with the sin in our lives. We want it so bad, but it is killing us. 
Paul describes the struggle with sin in Romans 7. He says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He says, I do not do the good that I want to do, and I do the evil that I do not want to do. And you can hear this tension, this struggle. And oh, how can we relate? Amen? How can we relate with that? And so this morning, we're looking at growth and holiness, Christ-likeness, and how it is absolutely essential to following Christ. Dealing with our sin is no small deal. That sin that you and I struggle with is an absolute, unfathomable offense to God. It completely offends God. In fact, because of it, you and I deserve hell. And in fact, sins just like that, many across the world will go to hell because of those. It is the reason why Jesus went to the cross. Yet God saved us, as it says in Romans 8, to conform us to the image of Christ. Peter, the first Peter, calls us to be holy, just as God is holy. And so a huge part of following Christ, and we've seen uh, discipleship. What does it mean to follow Christ? We've seen it all over Luke 9, and we'll continue to see it through through Luke. And here we see it's to, to put sin to death. And so this morning, in Luke 9, we see this passage uh, with this, this man with this boy and this spiritual warfare going on. And we'll see it as it portrays in us this battle with sin. And so we're going to look at these principles in this passage and how it applies to our own lives and in the sin that threatens to destroy us, threatens to destroy our family, and threatens to destroy our absolute integrity. And so we're going to consider uh, true applied faith in Christ. Applied faith meaning a genuine trust in Jesus' victory and finished work on the cross, and that faith applied into your life in your war against sin. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So if you have not already, do open up to Luke chapter 9. And just uh, let me remind you a little bit of the context. So this follows just after the glorious transformation of Jesus Christ that Peter, James, and John were able to witness on this, this mount, this mountain. And it was absolutely glorious. And if you recall, I believe two weeks ago when we looked at this, Peter did not want this to end. If you remember, he did not want, he's like, oh, let's, let's make some tents for you. Uh, potentially the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Hey, let this go on another seven days. But that's not what it is. And we saw that following Christ is not about these mountaintop experiences Following Christ is not about seeking after certain experiences or emotions. Rather, following Christ is more than that. For when we see them come down from this mountaintop, right away, they're faced with practical life. And here in this situation, we see they're faced with the spiritual warfare of this man who has a son possessed by a demon. And following Christ is much more than just experiences and emotions. It's practical. Putting sin to death. It's a spiritual for, a warfare that we face. And so looking at the, page, uh, the passage, number one, we see that the war rages. Verse 37, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, 
I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And so Luke, he first, he sets it up for us, right? He gives us the setting. They're coming down from this mountain. Remember, can you just think of... Uh, Peter, James, they're jacked. Like, this is, was amazing what they just saw. They're overwhelmed. They're coming down. And right away, they come upon a huge crowd. In Mark's account of this event, he adds that as they come down, the scribes in the crowd are arguing with Jesus' disciples. So there's, there's a commotion going on, a massive crowd. And a certain man, when he sees Jesus on the mountain, he cries out. He begs Jesus to come see his son, and he starts explaining the situation, that, the, that his son is in trouble. And you'll see here, and you'll see the pattern, it's his only son. So far, we have seen this a couple of times. If you remember uh, Jairus' daughter, only daughter, the widow who is coming out of the town during the funeral procession, it was of her only son. And Luke adds this note a lot, her only, their only kid. This is your only kid, and they're dying or they're already dead. And when there's always this picture, it's hopeless. It's absolute desperate, desperation. And we get this picture with this boy, and he's begging Jesus to come see him. And the man shares that the boy has a spirit that seizes him. And so this boy has a demon that affects him physically. Potentially, it's a demon that's exploiting a physical ailment like epilepsy, which is potentially what we're seeing here, and makes it worse. And so what we have painted here in the principle we're taking this is the battle, a picture of war for your soul and the souls of your family. Just like when Peter, James, and John are facing with the spiritual warfare right when they come down. That's what we face every day. As, as it says in Ephesians, Satan, the prince of the power of the air, and Peter adds, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to, to devour. And the kingdom of darkness that Jesus Christ has saved us from is continually seeking to re-enslave us, to regain its captives that are lost by Christ. And the world, on top of that, the world is constantly trying to conform us to its image, as we saw in Romans 12 too. And then on top of that, as we're looking at today, our remaining sin nature as Christians is continually seeking to hook us and enslave us again. We see that in Romans 6. And of course, we will never, we will never cease sitting this side of heaven, as John says in 1 John, but we will grow to sin less and less as we become more and more like Christ. But the sin, this warfare is always threatening it's always looking to conquer you and this war is real and we see the this real enemy like this man's son faces and look how look how the father describes this warfare with his son he says this it shatters him it breaks him completely crushes him and if i can pull that about our sin that we that we fight with can we not relate The sin that's always there, it hardly leaves us. Whether the anger, the lust, the worry, the anxiety, the pornography, the gossip, it's constantly trying to have you. It's always there, trying to enslave you again, and it shatters you. And you are ashamed of how much it does win. And when it does, it shatters your dignity. 
it shatters your relationship with God. It, it shatters the, the experience. It shatters and strains the relationships with your spouse, with your parents, with your kids. And the man adds here, if you see that he asked Jesus' disciples, but they could not do it. They could not cast the demon out. And this uh, presumably is referring to the other nine, as Peter, James, and John are coming down with Jesus. Uh, most likely it's referring to the other nine disciples who are down there, and the man came to them, asking them to, to cast out the demon, but they were not able. And this is crazy, uh, seemingly, from verse 1. If you remember, Jesus sent them out, and they were able to cast out demons. And they came back ex- ta- telling Jesus all about the demons they cast out, and how, now here they could not. Either this could be just some very intense and entrenched demonic activity, or maybe have they already lost this faith and trust that they had in Christ and that was they were so energetic about, as we see in verse 10. But this war wages. And make no mistake, this indeed is a war for your soul and has fought on many fronts. J.C. Ryle, a a church leader back in the the 1800s, he wrote this. He says, The enemy is working hard for your destruction, however little you may think of it. He's working hard for your destruction, however little you may think of it. Uh, A few months ago, I mentioned uh, a former teacher that had the opportunity to to speak in a a prison in Wisconsin. And he was able to talk with some of the, the inmates. And he realized a common pattern that he was hearing, and, the, and that was these men were in there for years and sometimes life because of a decision they made in just five minutes. Just five minutes. That's all it was, and it completely ruined their lives. In the same way, Satan is looking for just five minutes of your life to destroy you and your family. And if you're here this morning and, not, and, and you don't think that Satan is just looking for five minutes, that you're unplanned, your guard is down just five minutes, to destroy you and your family and your friends, then you're being completely deceived because that's all he's looking for is five minutes. He's prowling around. Satan never sleeps. He's far smarter than you and I. He's far mightier than you and I. He knows God's word far better than you and I. He knows man's heart very well. And he wants nothing but the destruction of you and your family. J.C. Ryle also wrote... You may, you may be careless about your souls, but Satan is not. He is not careless. And so this war for your soul and my soul with this sin, the spiritual warfare that we see in this passage, it rages every day. And then we see in our passage more of the disciples' failure in Jesus' response. So in verse 41, when the man comes and he's begging Jesus and he explains about his son, and then he says, I tried your disciples, and they could not cast them out. And then Jesus says, verse 41, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And this, this is a harsh statement. There's so many similarities about Jesus' statement here with a song that Moses sang back in Deuteronomy where Moses, he describes this, this wickedness of Israel and how Israel retreated God. In this, in this, uh, this song, this is recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses says this, he says, They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And then later he says, uh, And he said, being God, I will hide my face from them. 
I will see that their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. And so you can hear Jesus taken from this. You can hear the echo to the, of the song of Moses t- talking about this twisted generation of Israel. And so this is a harsh rebuke from so the Son of God, Jesus himself. And the first thing to notice here is who is addressed. Jesus is not speaking this towards the man who's asking for help. Rather, the statement is towards, one, the whole nation of Israel. And keep in mind, Israel is God's covenant people. They have a covenant with God, and there's no faith that Jesus is finding. If you remember back in Luke 7, uh, there's a Roman satyrian, a Gentile, who's asking for help. And when Jesus hears of his faith as a, as a centurion or as a servant centurion speaks. Jesus declares this, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. There's this faithlessness in Israel. And if, uh, I believe already, but definitely later in, in uh, Luke, Jesus will continue to, to, to rebuke Israel with the same language of this generation. This generation, we'll see that coming up. And he's rebuking this all of Israel at that time. You may recall back in Luke 7 where Jesus says, what can I compare this generation to? And if you remember, they're just like bratty children. And he goes on, if you remember that passage, which was not a very easy passage at all. So Jesus is rebuking Israel for being faithless. But we also see that Jesus is also directing this rebuke towards his own disciples. Matthew's account of this event Matthew specifies, it makes clear that it was because the disciples lacked faith. And that is why they failed to cast out the demons. And so the blame here is not on the one seeking help, but on the one offering help in this passage. And maybe that's because the one seeking help went to the right source, went to Jesus and asked for help because he knew he couldn't do it. But the ones offering help did not ask God for help. And so the problem here is a lack of faith and trust. And Jesus calls them a faithless generation. We often, as we're faced with this sin that continues to threaten us, we often fail because of our lack of faith. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Romans 6. I actually want us to go here. Romans chapter 6. This is a passage where Paul writes about overcoming sin. And I want us to see where faith comes into this, where this kind of connects. This is Romans 6. I'm going to start in verse 6. Romans 6, verse 6. Paul writes this. We know that our old self was crucified with them in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so Paul writes, this is what Jesus has done. He writes of the victory Jesus has won for you and I, Christian. And the the old self, that sin nature that just dove into that sin over and over, nothing holding it back. He says, it has already been crucified with Christ on the cross. 
It has been brought to nothing. And Paul says, so that you will no longer be enslaved to that sin. And the call then that Paul says is to consider that true. It's done. Now consider that true by faith. Trust that that is actually true. Some translations uh, that you're reading might even say, reckon yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ. Count it true. Jesus has done it. Now believe that it is true because it is. In the grammar of that word, it shows it's continual. Constantly reckon it true. Consider it true. And this is precisely, I'm going to suggest, is where you and I both fail at. Is considering that this is true. That lack of faith, the lack of trust. That Jesus has already victorious over our sin because it's been crucified with Christ on the cross so that we are no longer enslaved to that sin that so seems to just grab us and enslave us. Often, instead of trusting Christ, we, I and you, may give up because we get so discouraged and we give up hope thinking this could ever be done, but it's already been done and Jesus has won it for us. And as we see in Romans 6, it is from this foundation of faith in the victory that Jesus already won that action springs up. Verse 12, you'll see that Paul writes about, about us from this foundation of considering it true of Jesus' victory and our subsequent freedom from sin. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, do not let that sin reign in your body. Verse 13, Therefore, do not present your members to sin. It is from this faith, this foundation of faith and grace and what Jesus has done, that action springs out. It's from that foundation, that, that faith, that trust, and that's exactly where the disciples failed in this, uh, this, uh, um, this passage with the spiritual warfare. They failed at trusting Christ in His finished work, in His power. And we fail often because we do not trust Jesus' victorious, His victory on the cross. So we're called to not raise that white flag in our battle with sin. We would never, ever let a man break into our house and watch him do whatever to our wife and kids as we just watch in the corner. We would never do that. Yet when we lack faith and trust in Jesus' finished work and that our sin nature has been crucified and no long, is brought to nothing and we're no longer enslaved, we're doing exactly that. We're just sitting in the corner as sin ravages and rots our family. And so trust in Christ's victory and our subsequent freedom from sin that he, he accomplished on the cross. And I want to note one more thing before we move on. Jesus says within his statement, how long will I bear with you? Will I have to bear with you? How long will I have to endure with them? And we know how absolutely horrendous Jesus' death was and how unimaginable, especially when you add Jesus' separation from God the Father for a time. But don't overlook how hard his life was. Jesus suffered just like all of us. He suffered amongst us. He endured constant rejection, constant doubt. He had to get up each morning and he was limited by his incarnation voluntarily. He was limited in a way. He had a walk with his own creatures that did not give him honor and respect that is due to him. Not only that, but they would sin and they would affect 
offend him unfathomably to an eternal degree by their sin. He walks in his beautiful creation that's been absolutely devastated and marred by sin. And he's with us. And, he, and our sin offends him and we continue to distrust him. And how frustrating it must have been for our God to walk among us. And as it says in John, didn't even recognize him. Did not even recognize him. The perfect God yet rejected by his own creation. And so Jesus says, how long will I have to bear with you? How long will I have to endure this? But coming back to the, in this, this passage, the disciples failed in this, this warfare, the spiritual warfare we see here, just like we fail a lack of trust. But Jesus does not, and Jesus says, bring your son here. So after the failure of the disciples, he says, bring your son here. Verse 42, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, referring to the, the son, the man's son. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy, gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. So while the boy was coming to Jesus, the demon threw him down. And isn't that how it is? When you're fighting to follow Christ, when you're fighting to put that sin to death, it seems the spiritual warfare is just dialed up. It just gets ratcheted up. It's all heightened. The temptation seems to be everywhere. The temptation to be anxious, the temptation to lust, the temptation to be jealous and bitter, it seems to be everywhere at that moment because you're, you're working, you're fighting by God's grace to put that sin to death. But it is the enemy that's growing frustrated and angry because his time is short. For you see here in this passage, that was the last time the demon threw that boy down. That was the last time. And so do not hope over the sin that you battle in your life because it might be the last time because of the victory of Christ. And so Jesus does, as we see here, he does what the disciples couldn't. Jesus does what we cannot do. And Jesus gave the boy back to his father. Just as we read in Romans 6, it was Jesus on the cross that has won us victory over the sin in our lives. It, was, it brought the sin nature to nothing so we may be freed from the enslavement. And Luke adds, after Jesus cast out these demons, that all were astonished at God's majesty. And this is the actual word used by Peter later in Second Peter to describe what he saw at the transfiguration. Same word, the majesty, what he saw at the transfiguration. It refers to God's magnificence, majesty, mighty power, greatness. And in the same way, Jesus' victory on the cross for your sin and my sin was majestic. It was great. And so it was Jesus who has won the victory for us. And the problem in this account, in your battle and my battle over sin, is a lack of faith in Jesus and his finished work. And so the point I was saying at the, at the beginning about uh, applied faith, true or genuine applied faith, it's a faith that trusts in Jesus' victory and finished work on the cross, and then it's applied in your life today in your war against sin. For faith is intimately connected with work. As Martin Luther says, we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. Faith expresses itself. It works. That's what, that's what a genuine faith does. Uh, James says this in James 2, faith without works is dead. The point saying that we're not saved by faith and works, but, saying, but we're saved by faith that works. It inevitably works. It inevitably 
expresses itself. As uh, Pastor John MacArthur explains it this way, faith is objective and expresses itself in confident confession of Jesus as Lord and obedience to the Word of God, which results in a progressive separation from sin and conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this faith, first, it rejoices in your salvation, rejoices and trusts the victory of Christ on the cross that you are forgiven. Like we saw last week, Romans 8, 1, therefore there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Or First John, I love this verse. John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, which John just a few verses earlier said, whoever says he's without sin is a liar and the truth is not in him because we all sin. He says, if you, do, if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And so the faith, this applied faith, first rejoices in our salvation, Jesus Christ. And this faith believes and reckons it true of the victory that Jesus has won over our sin nature, as we saw in Romans 6, that he has brought it to nothing. We're no longer slave to it. And this faith is an applied faith, a faith that works to put that sin to death. It confesses the sin to God. The desire to kill this sin in your life, whatever it is, comes from a love of God, not only just because you don't want the results or the effects of that sin, and that's what you're running from, but it's also because you love God. This faith, as it says in Colossians chapter 3, sets its gaze not on the sin, but on the things above, as Paul writes, through prayer, through study of God's word. This faith puts the sin to death. It doesn't wrestle it. It kills it. As Paul says in Romans 6, get rid of any avenues that leads to the sin, that opens up an opportunity for the sin. Don't have it in around. Jesus says to take absolutely drastic measures. If you remember in Matthew 5, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, rip it out and get rid of it. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Sin is no joke. It will destroy you and your family. This applied faith not only actively tries to kill sin, but it replaces it with Christ-likeness. It replaces anger with active compassion. It replaces jealousy with gratitude. It replaces gossip with encouragement. It replaces pornography with meditation on God's word and a focus on your spouse. And so faith applies itself in action. And it's all based on the foundation of Jesus' victory on the cross, as we read in Romans 6. Because Jesus has won the victory for us. As we've seen in our passage, He is the one that has cast out the demon. It's His victory. And now Jesus, in our passage, He points to His disciples to the finality of that victory on the cross, as, as Bob was referring to. And back in verse 43, But while they were marveling at everything He was doing, Jesus said to His disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And as Bob said, for the second time in this passage alone, Jesus foretells of his death. It's coming. It's coming. And he says, and Jesus prefaces it with, let this sink into your ears. And it's a very similar language back in chapter 1, if you remember. At John the Baptist's birth, there was all these crazy, crazy things going on. His dad could now speak. 
Uh, there's a bunch of other stuff going on. And uh, the, Luke writes that the people that were watching this and observing it, it, they laid it upon their hearts. The same language here. They let it sink into the ears. It means to, to make a deposit, to let it take root, to put it in there intentionally. So Jesus is saying, let the truth of what's coming, my death, and, and, and of course the resurrection, the victory on the cross, and the result as we read in Romans 6, the freedom from sin, let that sink into your ears. Let the gospel be the meditation of your heart. Let the gospel always be on your mind. And then what Jesus says is exactly that, his coming death. And this is, runs very parallel with what we read back in verse 22, when Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He says, let this sink in. In Romans 6, let this sink in. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And so Christian, your old self that was enslaved to that gross sin, that offense of sin, has been crucified with Jesus on the cross. The body of sin that was brought to nothing for the purpose that you would no longer be enslaved to, whatever it is. And, and I pray that that's on your mind right now, whatever that sin is. Your victory over sin was accomplished by Christ on the cross. Your victory over pornography was accomplished by Christ on the cross. Your victory over gossip and jealousy and anger was accomplished by Christ on the cross. Let it sink in. Consider it true. Believe it. Trust and apply the faith into action. And remember that all the victories in your war with sin and all the failures... Jesus has the final word. It is finished. You're justified with God. You're already declared right with God because of Jesus Christ. He not only has won the victory for you of the sin, but he has won the victory that you're forgiven and you're free from the punishment of sin. And so in this passage, we see clearly this aspect of faith, but Luke stresses all the more Jesus' victory, Jesus' finished work. And a side note I just want to make because it runs in line with everything we've seen in Luke so far is the stark contrast. Many marvel at Christ, but very soon they would all reject Him and hate Him. And as Jesus has said earlier in Luke 9, following Christ is a road of discouragement and hurt and rejection from others. And in the same way, being serious about killing your sin will come accusations of you're just holier than thou or you're this, this, or this and all these, these accusations just to shame you. So this war with the kingdom of darkness and with the sin in your life has already been won by Christ on the cross. And we continue in the battle when this victory is manifested. And then the passage ends with a somewhat of a warning. Verse 45, But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this thing. And so the disciples, Luke says, they did not understand what Jesus just said about his rejection. And I'm sure it's not because they didn't understand what he meant, like what the actual words meant that he was saying. Rather, they could not comprehend how death could be calculated in the plan of the Messiah. How can that be? How could it be that the one, the coming deliverer of men would actually be delivered in the hands of men. How could that be? 
That doesn't make any sense. And Luke adds that Jesus' message was also concealed from them. And this resulted in them not perceiving exactly what Jesus is saying. And Luke doesn't say if the one concealing it is God himself or some other force. But it seems clear that before the resurrection, it seemed contradictory to the disciples that salvation would come by way of the death of the Messiah. And then Luke's last note, they were afraid to ask him. Maybe they were afraid to admit that they don't understand. Jesus, we don't, we don't know what you're talking about. Or maybe they feared the answer to their question. But do you not think that you and I have a specific sin or a few that we've been thinking about that we ought to bring and ask Jesus? Yet we fear to bring it to him. Maybe because we fear that he will just cast us away in anger because it's the same sin we've been bringing every single day. Lord, I did it again. God, I did it again. Lord, it happened again. Jesus, I'm, this is happening again and again. Maybe we fear that. But we're called to take it to Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is Jesus Christ our Savior, our Lord. And so the warning, a warning we can kind of hear from this from the disciples, if I can grab this principle, if you are not right now currently struggling with sin, you're probably not even fighting against it. There's a good chance you're just diving right into it. Or, much worse, you're not even a Christian. For we will always struggle with sin this side of heaven. And the lack, the absence of a struggle is, means you're just jumping into it or that you're not a Christian. We fail, to ret- we, we fail and we're called to return back to the cross, come back to the cross where Jesus won the victory. And the call is to continue to have faith in the finality of Jesus' work on the cross. And the call, brothers and sisters of Christ, is to go to war with your sin. Put it to death. Never stop, never quit, because the enemy never stops. The enemy never quits to try to destroy you and your family. And the war is real. And as we, uh, we've read from Paul, uh, Romans 7, Paul describing the struggle. I do not do the good that I want to do, but I keep on doing the evil that I do not want to do. And in that passage, he comes to this point where I'm sure that we've all experienced, he cries out, he writes, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then the answer is exactly what we see in this passage. Verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He will deliver me from this. For Jesus has won the victory for us already. He has, on the cross, crucified our old self, brought it to nothing, so that you are no longer enslaved to that sin. Jesus Christ has conquered it. Now, if you're here this morning and you're listening, please know that there's no way that you will put to death sin that you worship in idolatry. There's no way. You cannot be put... Sin to death if you're not in union with Christ by faith. If you're not a Christian, you're not going to put that sin to death that you may struggle with. Sure, you may outside look good, kind of like what Jesus says, a coffin. You can make it look all nice on the outside. But inside, there's rotting flesh. Just like if you're a non-Christian trying to fight against sin, you may make it look good on the outside, but it's rotting inside your heart. Therefore, if you're listening today and not a Christian, 
The call is to repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus Christ. For him alone can save you from your sin, both from your, the punishment of sin and also from the, the enslavement to sin. And finishing here, the, the call today, Christian, is to war against your sin. But do not let that turn. I will always add this. Do not let that turn into relying on your works. As if by doing this you're gaining favor from God because you have all the favor from God ever because of Jesus Christ. And so war against sin, not at the neglect of the gospel, but by the power of the gospel. Jesus has done it. It is finished. Now reckon it true and go out and live it. So this week, kill your sin. Number one, stop worshiping your sin and seeking your satisfaction from it. That sin that you've been thinking about, stop seeking your satisfaction from it. Hate it by loving God and fear of God. Two, rejoice. And this is absolutely foundational. Rejoice in your complete salvation and forgiveness in Christ. It's done. It's done. No matter what happens, it is done. Three, reckon it true that Jesus has truly already gained victory on the cross, as Paul says in Romans 6. And that by no longer are you enslaved to it, reckon it true. Four, set your mind on things above, like Paul says in Colossians 3. Study God's word, meditate God's word, pray, pray, and pray. Five, kill your sin. Stop wrestling it. Kill it. Six, get rid of any avenues that allows the sin to be available. Jesus says to take radical measures. Stop taking a butter knife and just rubbing it against your hand. Cut it off and throw it. Your eye, stop taking it out, put it in your pocket. Instead, take it out and chuck it from you because that sin is going to destroy you. Stop messing around. Sin is no joke. Seven, get your brothers in Christ as a man. Get your sisters in Christ as a woman to come around you and to help you put it to death, to help give you a plan, to help you in whatever measure that looks like. And number eight, replace it with Christ-likeness. Replace it with something else of Christ. For Satan prowls around looking to devour you, looking to devour your family. But Jesus Christ has already won the victory for us. So trust him and go to war with your sin as I go to war with my sin. Pray with me. Father God, Lord, forgive us for our sin, God. Lord, we hold to the First John 1, 9 that we confess our sin, that uh, you are faithful to forgive us. And Lord, we are forgiven in Jesus Christ. Lord, may we never forget that foundation as we go out. It's done. It's complete. It is finished by Jesus Christ on the cross. And now, as we look to follow you and what that means for our life, God, Lord, give us grace to put that sin to death. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me, God, for the sin that I do not put to death in my own life. Forgive us, God. Lord, give us a a renewed view of what you think of our sin and how it offends you. And Lord, out of love for you, give us grace to put it to death. Give us perseverance, Lord, as we fail. Remind us of the gospel that it is already finished. It is done. Jesus has already won. And so, Lord, we, we thank you, God. We are so thankful. Lord, help us to have our, our brothers and sisters in Christ, a trusted few, um, to help us in this, Lord, as we look to be holy as you're holy in God. Here we are. And so, Lord, we are going out. And, Father, give us grace. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we ask this in your Son's name. Amen.